Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 113. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, a guest that I know quite well, someone who is mercifully in the same time zone as us. And let me tell you, if you ever want to be on this show, if you're in the same time zone, big plus. Welcome to the show, Jeff Shaw from Bellingham BJJ. Jeff, how are you doing? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks a lot for inviting me. No problem. Thanks for coming, Jeff. So, Jeff, you've been a guy that I've wanted to have on the show for quite a while. I know that you were on Kesting's podcast recently, and you are also an accomplished podcaster in your own right. But I was hoping that maybe just for the benefit of the audience, if they don't know who you are, maybe you want to do a quick introduction. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, I'm Jeff Shaw. I got my black belt from Seth Champ. Seth is a black belt under Hoist Gracie. He got his black belt from Hoist. I started training at Triangle Jiu-Jitsu Academy in Durham, North Carolina. What's up, guys? Hope y'all are listening. Uh, still, uh, the North Carolina Jiu-Jitsu scene is still really close to my heart, but I moved back to the Pacific Northwest a few years ago to start Bellingham BJJ. As you mentioned, I have a podcast called Dirty White Belt Radio. That's on hiatus, but we have a couple hundred of episodes, and I love podcasting as a tool for uh, getting messages out to the community and sort of building community, which is one of the things I love about jujitsu is uh, building community around it. Currently, I own a school uh, called Bellingham BJJ. It's in Bellingham, Washington, just about 30 minutes south of the US-Canada border. And we have about 250 students. And it's a great time. One of the things that I love about Bellingham BJJ, as I mentioned before, love building community. Uh, we're all in this for some common reason, but a lot of us are in it for different reasons. And a lot of us come from different backgrounds. And so what I really love is uh, finding shared common ground among all these different folks and getting together uh, to practice this art that we all love. Awesome. Awesome. And incidentally, that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show. I mean, you are, after all, as you said, the dirty white belt. (laughs) (laughs) And this is the episode for the total beginner, a topic that I am happy to cover. I would like us to have a discussion on jujitsu for the total beginner. And when I say total beginner, I mean either the person who is stepping onto the mats for the very first time, or even before that, the person who is maybe intrigued by this jujitsu thing, but actually has no knowledge of what it is. You know, odds are that most of the people listening to this podcast, probably like 99%, have a a pretty detailed knowledge of jujitsu. And we take for granted that even, you know, like a a one-stripe white belt, at that point, you got a pretty detailed knowledge of what this thing is. And you can explain it to people and explain the general gist of it. But I recall when I started jujitsu, I mean, I came in with no athletic background at all, no interest in fight sports or really any sports. I just had always wanted to do a martial art. I did some preliminary research, and after looking into the UFC, I came away with the impression that jiu-jitsu was a really effective art that aligned with what I wanted to do philosophically. But I was not some person who came in with, you know, two years of experience watching the UFC where I could tell you, like, you know, what a Kimura is. I had no idea what any of this is. I didn't know what a guard was. I didn't know what a Gracie was. I didn't know what a tap out was. So I was coming in as a total fresh slate. And I feel like a lot of the time that's an underserved market. So I want this episode to be the reference point for the person who is starting for the very first time. If you know someone and they're interested in jujitsu and they kind of want to know what is it, please send them this episode. That's the idea. Or if someone is starting jujitsu and they're about to walk on the mats for the first time in the first class, 
this is the episode that I want you to pass on as their reference. Really, I want this to kind of be like the the primer, the introduction that doesn't necessarily tell you how to do it, but it tells you what it is and why you would do it and just kind of like the, the general ins and outs of the sport. So with that said, something that I think is is quite underserved is just the fact that most instructors, when they get a new person on the mat, they don't really spend time explaining what this thing is. This is something I recall, and I wonder if you guys had the same situation. But when I started jujitsu in my first class, they just like turfed me in there. And suddenly I'm doing these like guard drills and these arm bar drills. I don't know what any of this stuff is. Like it would have been super helpful if someone pulled me aside and spent 30 minutes giving me like a a lecture. (laughs) You know, here's what the hell this thing is. And here's how it actually works. A hundred percent. Like when I started and I'm, I got into it in some of the same way you did. I didn't have an athletic background really. And I'd seen the early UFCs. So I thought, okay, this is an effective martial art. And I thought I would enjoy grappling. But my first day we got shown two moves and then we sparred. And there were like eight other guys in the class, one of whom was and is still a high-level professional fighter, some of whom had wrestled in college, all of whom had done this before, and and I hadn't. And so I'd taken the class with two other guys, both of whom were more athletic, younger, uh, more experienced with this sort of thing. I loved jujitsu immediately, instantly. And uh, and I'm very lucky because my other guy, my other friends who I'd taken the class with are like, are you crazy? We never want to go back. You know, we, we just got crushed and we had no idea what we were doing. And so I think it's incumbent upon school owners to sort of think of that and create environments that are really welcoming to new people. And one of the things that I would say, and and, and I'm glad that you mentioned this, Steve, about like sometimes folks, we assume all this knowledge. A lot of times people assume that people know what tapping is, and that's not always the case. So the, the spiel that I usually give new folks is that jiu-jitsu is a complete martial art that includes all the aspects that you would expect in a martial art, grappling, takedowns, throws, submissions, as well as striking, at least in the traditional self-defense jiu-jitsu that I learned and that I teach, but striking for a self-defense purpose. And that your two jobs at White Belt are to keep breathing, and if you can't breathe, tap, and keep your elbows in tight to your body. And I thought that you all, as conceptually-minded gentlemen, would, would appreciate that. And I feel like those rules are really good things for folks uh, to keep in mind during their first class. Yeah, Steve, I like what you said about how when you're brand new, you should kind of, it would be nice if you were to get like a lecture or at least a 20 or 30 minute breakdown to sort of contextualize the things you're going to be doing. Because you're right, when you go into a fundamentals class, quite often the way they are taught is, you know, you do your like your break falls, your shrimps, line drills and things like that. And you are you know that as a beginner, you're programming your body to do these movements, but you don't really know why they're happening or, or when they're going to happen. And I think it's important for instructors to, maybe the instructor can't do it, but maybe a senior belt or an assistant coach can kind of take on this role of taking the new, the new student to the side and sort of saying, okay, like these are the sort of the These are why we're doing these moves. And it's kind of hard to picture when you first learn a shrimp, when are you going to use a shrimp? But if you say, okay, what the goal is from the bottom is always have your legs between you and your partner. And the reason why we do shrimps is because we want to make space so that we can bring our legs back in. Now, why would we want to do that? Because our legs are our frames. And what do frames do? They manage distance. So in, in this short few sentences, you can kind of paint a picture and contextualize why we do the things we do. And I think really what we're talking about is we're just simplifying the overall goals in jujitsu from the main positions, right? When you're on the bottom, we're looking to manage the distance and always keep our legs in front of our opponent. That's a pretty simple definition. And when you're on top, you want to stay on top and you want to work your way up the body to, to control the head and shoulders and get chest to chest. Like these are kind of the these are kind of the underlying goals of jujitsu. And I think that that's a really important thing to do for new students when they come in. Yeah, I agree 100%. I mean, I remember my first class, and it was just an incredibly awkward situation. You know, I was in my 20s, and I was, you know, I'm a pretty stubborn guy when I make up my mind that I wanted to do something. And I had decided that I wanted to do jujitsu. And so I showed up to the class, and I was going to do it one way or the other. And I'm glad that I wound up being that stubborn, because honestly, the gym that I chose as my first one 
I didn't know anything about like which gyms were good or which ones were bad or what to look at. I just literally went to Google and I searched for jujitsu and I took the top hit. And the first gym that I started at in retrospect was pretty awful. And the instructor was pretty awful as well. And I remember on the first class that I started at, you know, they basically just threw me in there as you do. And they, and I think that even before we, we talk about like the mechanics of jujitsu, we have to address some of the elephants in the room. And Jeff, you brought up a, a really good point about this, just kind of like the the why and just some of the very basic things that don't even have to do with jujitsu itself, but like control your breathing. That to me is one of the most important things that you can teach a white belt is control your breathing. And incidentally, that's one of the things that you can learn from jujitsu that is transferable to almost every conflict situation in life is to learn to control the breath. I remember on my first class, I got thrown in there and, you know, we, they showed a few drills. It was like a typical class where you do the warm up, which of course was I mean, whatever. And then they showed a few techniques. And of course, that was like in one year out the other, because I don't even know what jujitsu is. And they're showing me some weird, funky thing. And then there's sparring and they just throw me in there. And I remember the instructor being like, okay, go in there and fight this guy. And I don't think people understand how awkward it is to say something like that. Like I have never fought someone in my life. So I don't even know what, like, I really don't know what that means or how to do that. So I'm going there and I'm basically just try, like trying to hug this guy. I have no idea what to do. And I'm getting like arm triangled from inside his guard. I mean, I'm a good sport about it, but I was stubborn enough that I had made the decision like, fuck this. I'm going to do this one way or the other. And I just steamed through it. But if I were more on the fence, I can't imagine I would have stayed past that first class. Yeah, it sounds like we had a similar experience. And the lesson I took from that experience is that there are certain things that brand new folks should do, and there are certain folks that school instructors should do. And one of the things we do at Bellingham BJJ is we route everybody through an introductory class. Doesn't matter if you have experience, you know, if you have an upper belt, then then we let you skip it. But we have an eight-week period where we build you from the ground up and just say, all right, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. The first class is those four basic movements that Matt mentioned earlier. And we explain, okay, this is why we shrimp. Now let's shrimp for a while. Okay, this is why we bridge. This is why we break the fall. And we also produce, and this is something that I think has been really useful for students of different learning styles, resources for both before and after the class. Like we have little videos and notes that explain this is what the class is going to be like. And we have notes for them. We encourage students to take notes too. But we also have like Google Doc notes, which sort of refresh your memory. Because I don't know if, if you guys are like me, but it takes me three classes to learn a thing. And so at least if for I, me. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. Where the first time it's like, okay, I've seen that. Second time, okay, I can maybe do that. But for me having like notes that are like, okay, this is the hip bump. We do it when their posture is up. Here are the details to the technique. And then like you're never going to learn all of the details, all the concepts surrounding a technique in your first or even your fifth class on something. So having resources for students to take away, I think, is really useful. That's something that more schools should do. And I think in terms of new folks, you mentioned, you know, maybe you went to a school that wasn't conducive to new folks at first. I think new folks should really get a vibe and trust the vibe because I was lucky in that the school that, like I mentioned Triangle Jiu-Jitsu in Durham, that was the perfect school for me. My instructor was the perfect instructor for me. The training partners were great, you know, and so even though it was that environment of, hey, you've never fought anybody in your life, go fight that guy who's a professional fighter. And that was probably suboptimal. Everybody was really great and encouraging and welcoming. And and so, and my instructor's attitude was, was really a good fit for my particular sensibilities. Not everybody's that lucky. And so I think that because, you know, I think jujitsu is good for everything. I think jujitsu is good for, you know, Steve, you mentioned it applies to your, your daily life no matter what. It's also good. It's good for self-defense. It's good for sport competition. It's good if you want to, if you want to compete in mixed martial arts, you can do all of those things and you should use good, solid, fundamental jujitsu as a tool to get better at all of those things. And then once you've done it for a while, you'll probably specialize and really focus in one of those things. But if you walk into a school and you're like, that vibe is not my vibe. Like maybe you walk into a fight gym where everybody wants to be a pro MMA fighter and you're a 40 year old guy who's a little overweight and you just want to get in shape, make some friends, learn a new skill. It's okay to be like, this place isn't the place for me. And that's what I tell everybody who comes into my school in that, you know, I want everybody to train jujitsu and I want everybody to train jujitsu and be happy and comfortable in a place that helps them achieve their goals. And if you're trying to be a UFC fighter, my school is probably not the school for you and that's okay, you know? And so, so I think, you know, when people get a vibe, 
with the instructor, either oh, I'm really resonating with this person or, oh, I'm really not resonating with this person. It's OK to go elsewhere. I couldn't agree more. And I think that I think a lot of people who are kind of on the jujitsu market thinking about trying the sport and looking for a place to train. I think some people probably don't realize that it's OK to shop around. Anyone who has a jiu-jitsu school and a sense of ethics would even recommend that people shop around to find the best gym to train at. Because you're right, people do have different goals and different uh, personalities. And the fact is that, in my opinion, a gym has to have a lot of different things be, you know, come together in a particular way to suit somebody's needs. I mean, you know, aside from the instruction is one thing. I mean, the gym has to be clean. It has to be welcoming. There has to be people that train there. (laughs) Because if you're the only one there, it's like, well, why isn't there anyone training here? You know, these people have to be interested in your journey as well as their own. And, uh, you know, there has to be a nice, a good balance, uh, a hierarchy between higher and lower ranks. We already discussed the instructor needs to be welcoming and and knowledgeable and teaches jujitsu in a way that allows different people to absorb the information in the most efficient way possible. And I think that's uh, that's also another skill for an instructor that's really important is, is realizing that people will learn jujitsu in many different ways and to be able to actually take your knowledge wherever your resources are and then kind of convert it and transfer it to your students in a way that they can understand and retain, that is a skill in itself. So definitely I recommend that everyone, you know, if you if you walk into a jiu-jitsu school and you get that weird vibe of like, ah, something's a little bit off about this place, it's probably a good thing to listen to that vibe and to do further research so that you can, you know, really find a place that has the best fit for you. Yeah. And let's talk about that research for a second here, because this is something that I think most people don't put much thought into when they're looking for a jiu-jitsu gym people or at least when they start jiu-jitsu people who come into this cold you know they they're looking for a service they look for a gym they look for something that seems like it might be popular maybe they take someone's recommendation they go to the gym but i don't know if people really understand when they come into this art how entwined you wind up getting to your gym it is very very hard to disentangle yourself from a gym if it's not working out, especially if you've been there a while. Because first of all, I mean, you know, you you build relationships with the people there, but also, uh, you know, and this is one of the things that we are very critical of on the show about the culture of jujitsu. It is a bit culty and some gyms are more culty than others. And some gyms really exploit the cultiness and they'll make it very awkward for people to leave. And those are the kinds of gyms you want to avoid. So my suggestion, when you've got someone who is, you know, brand new, if you're listening to this episode and you want to try jujitsu and you're trying to figure out, okay, where do you train? Like Matt said, the first thing to do is to do some research in terms of what I would suggest you do there. I mean, of course you want to Google the gym. But if you Google and you look at, you know, you look at the the website, I mean, everyone's going to put their best foot forward on their own website. So that's not going to tell you much except for who's the instructor and what's the class schedule. I would suggest go a step beyond that and look at what people are saying about that gym on forums. Like, don't just look at their own website. Look at forums. Look at negative reviews of the gym that might be on Google reviews or Yelp or their Facebook page. Make a point specifically of Googling the instructor. See if they've been embroiled in any sorts of controversies that you wouldn't want to be associated with. And of course, as always, if you know people who train, ask them what their opinion is and always look for a second opinion because people inside the community might have some good inside knowledge of which gyms are good and which ones are bad. And sometimes it's not even about whether the gym is good or bad, but sometimes like like you guys said, it's about the culture fit. Maybe a gym is MMA focused or or maybe a gym is family focused and ultimately does that align with your goals? That's the thing you got to sort out. Yes to all of that. And something to lift up a thread that both of you said, Uh, Steve, I thought all of your tips are fantastic. One that I would add to it is if a gym tries to make you not If a gym tries to discourage you from trying out other gyms, that to me is an immediate red flag. And I understand that a lot of folks are in this for business as a way to make a living and everybody's got to make a living. But um, I had one thing happen when I opened and a guy called me who was a prospective student and he was like, hey, there's another place in town. Why should I train at your place instead of that place? And I was like, man, I'm flat out not going to do this. I was like, they have some good guys over there. I know these guys. Uh, You know, This guy's awesome. That guy's awesome. And I'm just not going to talk shit about other people that do 
jujitsu. And what I would suggest that you do is try both places. And, you know, you mentioned a great example earlier, Steve, like some places have really family focused programs and, you know, some folks do or don't have kids programs. It's like, just because a gym is not a great fit for you does not mean it's not a great fit for someone else. And so I think that, I think that as school owners, we, we also have a responsibility to sort of build each other up. And one of the things I loved about the jujitsu community in North Carolina, by the way, was there were a number of schools within this area, what's called the triangle, which Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, about 30 miles distance between the three. And more than once I saw during this time, there was a lot of respect between most of the schools in the area. And so if a guy either exhibited an attitude problem someplace or had got into a, like a personal conflict with somebody there, and this happened both at my school and at other schools, it happened in both directions, they would recommend one of the other schools in the area and the instructors would talk and say like, hey, you know, this guy, he really wants to compete and we're a gym that is more family focused, fitness focused, and it's frustrating him because he's going too hard in rounds and he's getting angry with people and they're getting angry at him. He should try your spot. And, you know, I know that that's not always, not always realistic, but I think we should make it realistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. And I think that, you know, when you're talking about people who maybe take this like ultra seriously, something else to bear in mind that I have noticed when you're shopping around for gyms, if you go to most bio pages for an instructor, the bio page is going to go on and on about this, you know, your instructor is a five-time world champion and a 14-degree black belt under Bob Gracie or something like that, right? I mean, usually it's about talking up someone's competition record. And I think actually that's a major blind spot for the sport. You know, when I came into jujitsu, I didn't know what a, like, a, I had no idea what a Gracie is. I remember people telling me, like, this is a Gracie gym, and that was part of the sales pitch. And I'm thinking, who the, what the fuck is a Gracie? <laughs> you know, am I supposed to care about this? Is this, is this supposed to impress me? And honestly, 12 years in, it still doesn't impress me. So I find that that is a, a big blind spot and something that makes it hard for an abject beginner to understand when you're shopping around is like you you want to learn about a gym and you want to learn about the instructor and they're yakking up their competition record. I mean, if if you go to a gym's webpage and it says, you know, Bob Carlinos is a 12-time IBJJF world champion in the featherweight division in Nogi, you're going to be like, okay, first of all, what is the IBJJF? Second of all, what is a, what is a gi? Third, what is no gi? Like it, none of this is impressive. So when I am considering whether an instructor is, is you know good or bad or the kind of instructor I would like, I kind of ignore that stuff when I see it online, and I'm looking more for attributions of character and method. Right? I'm more interested in in seeing the part where they say that you know this instructor is passionate about building kids programs, or this instructor is passionate about jujitsu as a vehicle for self-improvement. So I always look for that stuff when I'm kind of like taking a first glance at an instructor and doing research. I'm way less interested in their competition record. Being a good competitor does not equate to being a good coach. Yeah, this instructor has no sexual assault allegations. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, that is maybe one of the things that you need to look at in this day and age. It's true. It's all too prevalent. And uh there's a particular team that <laughs> has a lot of, of these issues. But I think, Steve, you're definitely right about learning about your instructor, not just their credentials. I mean, that is important, probably more important if you're wanting to compete, even though having an instructor with lots of credentials doesn't necessarily make them a good instructor. But you're definitely right, depending on your personality and your goals. I mean, you're going to want to align with a gym that has those same values those same missions and visions. And if you if you find yourself in a gym that doesn't fit, like you said, the example you used earlier, where if you're a middle-aged person, you know, you're not athletic and you're just looking to make friends and socialize and learn some self-defense, you probably don't want to go into the you know, the fight pit with all these, with all these guys that are going to kick your ass. Right. And that's, I think people just need to realize that when they look for gyms, you know, be selective and really do your research before you commit to one thing, because the worst thing you want to want to do is go to a gym and, you know, you sign up and then you get locked into a contract, possibly depending on their system that they use to build contracts. And then you can't leave. That's why actually, I don't think I've ever really discussed it, but our contract is very transparent at our school and and uh, we don't lock people in at all. You can leave at any time you want. And I think it's important as an instructor to build that kind of transparency with people to show them like, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to scam you or anything. Like if you don't want to train here, I don't really want you here instead of literally just trying to get as many members as you can coming through the door. 
I could have said those words verbatim, Matt. Seriously, we don't do contracts at all for exactly that reason. I want people in the academy that are excited to be there, that are on the same journey, that are like, we're all on the same team. And and if you, if you don't want to be there, I definitely don't want folks there. And so we've given some advice about from a school owner perspective and from a new student perspective and, you know, to get a vibe and trust that vibe. One other thing that I'll mention is like after you have, let's say you have found a school and you go in and they let you watch a couple classes, which is something we do. I encourage folks, if if they'll let you watch class, watch class. You'll definitely get, even if you're not ready to train yet, go watch a class because you'll definitely get the impression of like, are these people having a good time? Are these people people that are committed to each other's success or are they, you know, is everybody smiling? Are they learning? Even people that don't know anything about jujitsu, you can watch a class and get a sense for, is this a group of people that are happy to be there that feel like they're progressing? And then once you make that decision that like, yeah, this is a good environment for me, I would advise new people to be patient and sort of make a small time commitment to themselves. Like it's part of the reason that our intro program is either a four or an eight week program, depending on how we're running it. Because if you tell people, hey, jujitsu is a lifelong journey, which it is, and you'll never know all of it, which you won't, that can be overwhelming and intimidating for new people who are like, but wait, am I not going to like get good ever? And I think if folks have patience, show up to class, learn the basics and the fundamentals and just do like, just say like, you know what, I'm going to try this for a month. I'm going to try this for two months. You absolutely will be able to see progress at the end of four to eight weeks. And, you know, you won't be tapping upper belts or anything like that, but you'll see that like, oh, wow, I understand how these moves fit together now. Oh, my body is moving more efficiently than it was. Oh, I'm in better shape. I understand how to shrimp effectively. And if you are seeing that progress, that's what kind of what gets you hooked, right? And keeps you coming back. And if you're not seeing that progress, maybe the school isn't the right school for you after all. Yeah. And I think that the the bit that you're mentioning about how you don't just throw people in there and just have them basically just regurgitate techniques, the layer where you actually give them some context and explain why onboard them properly, I think that makes all the difference. I mean, we forget how weird jujitsu actually is to the layperson, right? I mean, it's probably a little bit more normalized now because of the prevalence of the UFC, but we got to remember even the UFC, like not everyone watches it. Not everyone knows what it is. I remember one time I was doing an intro private for two young women who were friends and they came in and, you know, they wanted to learn some self-defense and, you know, I basically started them off and started showing them the various positions and talking them through it. And I had to be like, look, okay, this position is called the guard, right? You're on the ground. I've asked your friend to wrap your legs around you and hold you down. And I'm going to take a minute to acknowledge the abject weirdness of this, right? Like this is a very, very strange thing to just ask a stranger to do, but here's why. And so really the the goal of the first class was to kind of explain to them in detail why we're doing this, right? It's, it's kind of weird to tell someone like, okay, I just want you to take this person and just like aggressively hug them, <laughs> right? It, it's much more important to explain like why we're doing this because, you know, most people when they come, especially from my my age bracket, right? We grew up thinking that martial arts were Jean-Claude Van Damme and Bruce Lee and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And you ca- and a lot of people are going to come into a jiu-jitsu class and be like, where are the punches and the kicks? And this is something that I think we need to prime people about and explain to them like, look, yeah, this, this is weird. You're going to have people wrapped around you and hugging you. You're going to have people trying to cut off blood to your brain. You're going to be, if you're claustrophobic, you're going to have someone squishing you. People might be sweating into your eyeballs. Like it's going to be a little bit gross. It's a very close contact thing. Believe it or not, you get comfortable with it, but here's why we do everything we do. I think that's a much more gentle process and a much more respectful process than just turfing someone into the deep end. One of the things I always say is that jujitsu is counterintuitive and movements are counterintuitive. You mentioned a lot about, you know, you're going to be in uncomfortable positions and situations that you wouldn't find yourself in in your daily life, right? Like there's a person on top of me sweating into my eye. But additionally, one of the things that I always tell folks, because it can be frustrating if you've never shrimped before, if you've never bridged, if you're learning a technical stand-up. And what I always tell folks when I frame those techniques is these are counterintuitive movements that we do in jiu-jitsu for specific purposes. And it's okay if you're not good at them at first because you would never do something like this in your daily life. When do you shrimp in your daily life? When we stand up, which is another one that I think is really important, particularly from a self-defense perspective, the, the break fall and the uh, the technical stand-up, what we call standing up 
up with base, I think are two of the most important techniques in jujitsu, just because from a self-defense perspective, you know, they're the ones that are going to make you the safest. But if you've gotten up one way your whole life, you know, you just, well, I'm sitting on the ground and now I stand up and now suddenly, wait, now I'm, I'm going backwards. This is strange. And so setting that level of expectation that, look, we're building new neural patterns here. The movements are going to be counterintuitive. You're not going to get it at first. And that's part of the point. It's part of the joy. It's part of the pleasure. And it's part of the accomplishment because once you lock in those benefits, you'll never, you'll never forget how to do it again. Yeah, that's why I've definitely changed my intro privates a lot over the years, just like I've changed how I've taught jujitsu over the years. Nowadays, when I have someone who's completely green, I don't even begin showing the moves for the first 15, 20 minutes. We basically just discuss Bernanke's theory of uh, alignment. And that's basically it. It's, it's an easy concept to grasp. I always want my body to be in a physically integral position that allows me to be athletic and allows me to move and and exert force and whatnot i never want to be in a position where you know i'm twisted up or where my spine is compromised and i I go into depth about the posture structure base and i say this is the definition of good alignment if you if your body is compromised in any of these ways you know you're gonna it's gonna require a lot of effort and you're basically going to be you know stuck in what we call a defensive cycle Conversely, that's what you want to do to your opponent is you want to think about breaking their alignment. So instead of instead of getting into this habit like I did as a white belt where we're learning moves and trying to memorize moves and techniques and sort of, you know, add these moves into our tool belt, you know, you do need to learn moves too. But we need the context. We need to understand how we actually make someone weak. How do we make them unathletic? How do we maintain you know, the integrity of our body positioning at all times. And if we can always have that in the back of our mind, I think we have a much sturdier foundation than just, okay, we're going to do an arm bar from closed guard. We're going to do, you know, this is what a Kimura looks like. This is a, you know, this is a triangle. Because if you teach a triangle to someone, literally just the triangle, you're going to leave out a huge portion of the underlying reasons why the triangle can be effective and why the triangle can fail. So I always start my beginners with that posture structure based spiel. Yeah, yeah. And for those who don't know what we're talking about here, I would suggest rewinding to episode 50 that we did with Rob Bernacki, where we go into this in quite a bit of detail. We also actually talked about it in episode one, just because we thought it was such an important topic that we would lead the whole podcast off with it. But we kind of did a reboot in episode 50. So if you don't know what we're talking about, that's where you go. I agree 100%. I think that a mistake that we all make both when we start as students, but also the mistake that a lot of people make when they're teaching is we think it's just all about a bunch of techniques and we're all technique hunters to begin with. You know, if you're getting stuck on the bottom, you want to know what's the perfect escape or what's the perfect sweep from here. But in reality, I think that if you're a new person, the techniques are almost irrelevant out of the gate. It's better to think about why you're doing this. And Matt's got a good point. Like I I generally like to say that, look, Don't worry too much about the 12 steps to doing an omoplata if you're a new person, right? What you should be worried about is keeping alignment. And that means like keep your spine strong and not twisted up. You know, don't let your neck get twisted up. Keep your structure strong, meaning don't let the guy like grab and screw with one of your arms or legs and keep your base, meaning you have the ability to move around still. You have the ability to absorb force. You have the ability to generate force. If you do those things and you control your breathing and you're loose, probably you're going to get a lot better a lot faster than if you're like just frantically trying to remember every single technique that gets thrown your way. Yeah, I start all my introductory privates with the Dolph Lundgren voice from Rocky Four. I must break your alignment. I don't, but I'm going to start, you know. Uh, in all seriousness, though, Steve, since you and I had a conversation on the the Mental Models Discord the other day about teaching concepts versus teaching techniques, I've done a lot of thinking about this. And here's how I think about it. I think that it's almost a bell curve, and or at least this is the way I approach. And, you know, like you, Matt, I've changed the way I teach a lot over the years, and so I'm always trying to get better at conveying information. But the way I do it is I feel like I'm about – concept, 80% technique for new people in that I teach very few moves to new people. I'm happy to talk about like that particular methodology, but basically I'm like, here's a move. Here's the reason we do the move. Now here are the specific details of the move. Let's drill the move. And so we spend about 20% of the time talking about, okay, here's how we keep our spine in alignment. Here's why we do it. Now here's a move where we do it. Let's drill that move. 
Then as people get better, and I would say at blue and purple belt, it starts to shift. And so now it's more like 50-50 concept and technique where you're like, okay, you understand you know, maybe not perfectly, but you understand implicitly that I want to keep my spine in alignment, that I want active toes, that I want posture, that I want hips forward. Now let's branch out and explain all these different ways to apply these techniques in these more advanced positions like the omoplata or like certain open guards that you would not necessarily teach a white belt. And for me, purple belt is sort of the line of demarcation, like at least the way it is in, in our association. And for me, like that's the sort of serious major promotion belt where if you get a purple belt, I expect you to earn a black belt one day. And at that point, it becomes very conceptual. By the time you've earned a purple belt in jujitsu, you, you should have a lot of the main concepts really well internalized. And at that point, we start talking about, okay, and you know all these techniques, right? And you're not going to learn like a zillion more techniques, but now we're going to learn how to apply those concepts in all these different ways of like, hey, I trap a post. Here's how that applies to this technique I already do. And so it's almost like a curve where uh, where we start 20-80, then 50-50, and then by the end, for me, it's probably like 80-20. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm inclined to agree, and I should probably clarify the thought earlier. I think that the the best approach to jujitsu is you take concepts and you take techniques, like which are really just a technique is just an individual application of a concept or a series of concepts, and then you kind of attack from both ends, and then you meet in the middle. And if you just do one way versus the other way, you're probably going to stunt your growth. It, the way that I like to equate it is if you want to teach a, a kid how to speak, right? You know, like you've got a, a very young child. You don't sit them down when they're one year old and start explaining grammatical structure to them, right? You give them words and you get them to memorize them so that they can get their feet wet. And then you give them a few more words and a little bit more complex. And then you start teaching them how to tie them together. And then you start teaching them about big grammatical structures. So you constantly need to be pulling at both ends of the rope, one being like the conceptual and one being the specific techniques. But I agree that as I get more experienced, I am moving much more to the concept side of things, which is basically how this podcast came about, right? Is it really, I think that at, at the black belt level, you're probably going to be thinking a lot more in terms of concepts because you've internalized so many of, of those concepts that you can do very complex motions without really needing to think about every step in the same way that, a, say, a white belt would. I guess something that we should also address while we're on this topic, what is jujitsu? You know, most people, I think, who come into the martial arts stone cold, they have no idea what the differences are between the different martial arts. I mean, for the longest time, I thought judo was a striking art because of Austin Powers doing fucking judo chops. Judo chop! <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, thought, I thought because totally. of that, the, I had no idea what judo was. I thought it was a striking art. And everything that I had ever seen in terms of like Hollywood it taught me that the way to fight someone was you punch them in the face or you kick them in the face. It never occurred to me that you would want to throw someone and wrestle them to the ground. It never occurred to me that you would want to submit someone. Like that was just such a weird thing. So I guess the question is when you got someone who's coming in stone cold, I mean, do you give them kind of an explanation of like what jujitsu is and how it's different from the other arts? I do. I say that jujitsu is a complete art of self-defense that includes striking, grappling, uh, takedowns, throws, and a philosophy of self-defense. I also say, and this may be a topic for a different podcast than brand new folks, I think these days there are more jujitsus than there are jujitsu. But the reason that I think that, and this is the spiel that I give to the new folks, is jujitsu is a complete martial art. Once you get a blue belt in jujitsu, at least from our school with our curriculum, you should learn something to do from every major grappling position, including standing. You should learn to defend things like strikes, things that are the most common uh, situations you're going to encounter in self-defense. And, and you're going to have a really broad-based understanding of that. And so the one-sentence elevator pitch is it is a self-defense martial art that is rooted in grappling techniques. But there's a lot more to it than that, at least at least for me, because I think jiu-jitsu is kind of a metaphor for life. And But I, one thing I also say, and this is something I fundamentally believe, is that once you learn those fundamentals, I think learning the basics – is something that serves you well, regardless of what your goals are. If your goals are just fitness and fun, if your goals are competition, like sport jujitsu, if you want to fight MMA, 
you have to learn the fundamentals. You have to learn the basics. Everybody needs that good grounding. Now, once you've learned those basics, right, and you've trained jiu-jitsu for a few years and you've learned that blue belt curriculum really well, now you may choose to specialize based on your goals. Like maybe you couldn't possibly care less about competing in a jiu-jitsu competition, but you'd like to feel more confident walking down the street. Maybe you don't ever want to get punched in the face in a combative situation for MMA, but you might really like to you know, lose weight, get in shape all that sort of thing. You can start to build your jujitsu off of that base. And so learning jujitsu is kind of like a pyramid, right? Where you have to build a strong base for the pyramid. And that's what I think of when I when I think of jujitsu. It's sort of funny, like the other day, my wife and I took one of these online classes where uh, this lady who's a cartoonist teaches you how to draw a llama. So I learned how to draw a llama. And I started thinking about jujitsu and the concept of art, because jujitsu is an art. You can be an artist that focuses on so many different things, right? You can you can draw realistic stuff. You can draw cartoony stuff. You can draw – you can have a particular focus. You can be a comic book artist. You can be a fine artist. But you still have to learn those basics. And I think the same principle applies to, to learning jiu-jitsu. Yeah, 100%. I feel that when people get started on jiu-jitsu and they come in for the first day, you know, like you said, there is a lot of bit of confusion about the martial art. And people usually come in – because they want to learn how to defend themselves. But as you train more and more, like you said, jujitsu kind of becomes like a vehicle for learning how to live. You can get a lot out of jujitsu in ways that you wouldn't expect. I mean, I remember, and I've talked about this on the podcast, you know, there is common for executives to like, talk about, you know, the art of war and how they applied those lessons to business. And I used to think that was such BS, but actually now I see it, right? There's a lot of things that you can learn from jujitsu that it teaches you like micro lessons, lessons at a very small, discrete scale that you can apply up to much bigger topics like strategy or personal relations. It's, it's very powerful in that way. In terms of how you define jujitsu, actually, Henner Gracie had one of my favorite explanations for jujitsu. And I think it's a great way to separate jiu-jitsu from the other martial arts. Now, he basically says that jiu-jitsu is the only true self-defense martial art. Every other martial art is about self-offense, which I think is actually a really clever way to put it, right? With most martial arts, you're trying to inflict so much damage on your opponent that they're no longer able to fight. Whereas jiu-jitsu is more about absorbing the incoming force and de-escalating the situation through control. And the ideal outcome in jiu-jitsu is the opponent gives up of their own volition. So it is it is really, truly the only self-defense martial art that I am aware of. And in fact, that's one of the things with jiu-jitsu that now limits its effectiveness in things like MMA, right? You see this all the time where someone wants to go to the ground and the other guy just won't engage. Like jiu-jitsu only really works effectively if you are the one being attacked. It's very hard to like, jujitsu your way into a fight <laughs> you know a lot of the time jujitsu is how you deal with an incoming fight so that's one way that i like to describe it is that like look it's it is a self-defense martial art and joe rogan also had said that you know jujitsu is one of the only martial arts that you can train at with a hundred percent involvement and still do so safely right if you were to spar with full intensity and in kickboxing you'd be, have so many concussions but in jiu-jitsu you can spar consistently at high intensity and do it very very safely and that's one of the reasons why it is so effective and is such a great workout but of course the kryptonite to jiu-jitsu is standing up so and also ball strikes too yeah. <laughs> i really like the the metaphors that you guys are using where jujitsu is very much like life. That is so true. And I find myself going to jujitsu. Well, it's, I mean, it's my job, but what keeps bringing me back to jujitsu is it keeps grounding me and making me struggle. And I think there are people in life who have an intense desire to struggle on a daily basis. And then there's people who try to avoid struggle on a daily basis. And one of the things about something physical like jujitsu, and even honestly, I, I, you know, I talk about cooking a lot on the show in my culinary career and things like that is these are activities where there's immediate repercussions for your mistakes. And, you know, you can't blame anyone else but yourself. So it forces you to struggle. It forces you to take extreme ownership. And if you fuck up, it, it forces you to learn. There's consequences for everything. And there's that immediate feedback, that real honest feedback there's no hiding in jujitsu. There's no, we've seen that there are black belts who lie and there's a lot of funny videos that expose these black belts. I'm not saying people don't lie in jujitsu and they don't hide, but it's very difficult to hide when you're on the mats every day. You know, the, 
the jujitsu kind of serves itself. Sometimes it's fair, sometimes it's not fair. And such is life as well, right? So I really like how jujitsu can condition you to endure a difficult life and it can give you the tools needed to excel in these difficult times and, and to thrive. And the amount of mental strength and, you know, spiritual strength, all these, all these different aspects that comes together, it, it, to me, it really does enhance life. And uh, before, before I close this note, do you guys want to hear John Danaher saying rodeo? Yes. So we've got a talented opponent now. This is not his first day at the rodeo. Oh my God. Ro- rodeo? <laughs> like the, like the drive in California. Hey guys, I have have a free million dollar idea, either for you or for anybody listening to the podcast, because I had this idea after I first watched Danaher's Leg Lock Instructional, Yeah, and I just don't have the time to do it. If you have video editing skills, all you have to do is splice every time he says the word buttock or buttocks, (laughs) and it would be like about a 10-minute YouTube video of just buttock, 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 buttock. He does say that a lot. It's pretty great. And like, you just imagine, like, uh, yeah, and if if you know any animator friends, you could animate something to go around with it. Hey, I got a question for you guys. When you have to describe someone's buttock, what word do you use? I usually say ass cheek, and when I'm teaching kids, obviously, you can't say ass cheek, so I say say butt cheek, and of course, usually you'll get giggles, right? But... (laughs) What do you what do you say? I don't say buttocks ever. I don't ever say that. My instructor says bum and it never ceases oh, wow. to crack me up. <laughs> oh my god. I could also use that with kids too. I think that's appropriate with kids, but yeah. So this is part of the reason I don't have a kids program cuz I just say ass, but one yeah. word I learned from my my brother co-owner of Bellingham BJJ who's and a guy who has an awesome new instructional out on BJJ Fanatics today, Dave Porter, and it's funny because Dave was a Marine and so is has a lot darker sense of humor than I do, but he's also a lot better at teaching kids. And so Dave says hindquarters. And at first I was like, what? Because I well, first time I took a class from Dave and he was like, and so my opponent's hindquarters. And I'm like, why would you? Oh, because you, you have to teach to a broader demographic. And hmm, so interesting. Yeah, I, I picked up from my instructor like that pant grip. It is something that I have had to consciously excised from my vernacular because for years I called it what my instructor calls it, which is ass fabric. <laughs> like seriously, it's just like ass fabric. You, you just grab their ass fabric and <laughs> that, that's awesome. That's awesome. And so actually Matt, uh, Matt introduced me to, you know, his buddy, Mike Lee, who's a multi-degree black belt in jujitsu. And he, he says ass, but what I found just absolutely hilarious is when he's referring to one butt cheek like when he's talking about getting on your side he'll say like get onto your left ass and i thought that's just <laughs> the funniest thing like oh yeah you just need to get on your left ass to do this one what, the, what are you talking about dude but actually that that's another really great thing we've talked about this extensively with valerie worthington on the podcast which is the need to to really monitor your vernacular when you're talking to new people because people come into this thing from all walks of life and i mean yeah, yeah, you know, I don't want everyone to get into the business of censoring themselves, but you've got to be careful what language you choose because you can really turn off and alienate people through really stupid decisions. I mean, when I when I was taught jujitsu, you know, the old like hands around the throat technique, I was taught to call that the rape choke. And yeah. it became pretty clear pretty quickly that that name is going to really piss off or upset a lot of people. So now we call it the Goozle, which Jeff, I think is a name you will totally appreciate. I'm pro Goozle and I vote. <laughs> the Goozle? I've never even heard of that term. <laughs> so the, the Goozle is the insider name that pro wrestlers call the choke slam. They call it the Goozle oh. when they're talking about it behind the, behind the scenes. So basically when I grab someone- That's a great name actually. It, it is. So when I grab someone by the neck, we call it the Goozle. And it's such a- You have to think about the perspective of a new person, right? A lot of women, especially, and even men come into jujitsu as the result of a violent experience. And if you're in there using violent language, it's really sending the wrong message, right? We have to think about how the language we use reflects on the kind of persona that we want to put out there. And so I've really, over the years, tried to make my language more scientific, more clinical, more martial artsy, and avoid kind of the gutter language that it can cause a lot of issues in the wrong context. And it can it can alienate a lot of people who would otherwise have a great jujitsu experience. So that's a lesson that I learned over the years. Yeah, definitely not really a tasteful way to describe that grip. I usually call it a C grip or a, or a palm grip. Mm-hmm. 
but I, I've definitely used that that vocabulary before when I'm in a room with full of friends, but definitely mm-hmm. not in a intro class or a woman's class. I mean, yeah, that's, uh, that's just not a smart thing to do. And yeah, it's not very respectful as well. But I like Goozle. I've never heard of that before, actually. I'm probably going to start using that now. Well, that's because you've got to watch more pro wrestling, Matt. Yes. And actually, I know, th- I know that Jeff is also a fellow pro wrestling fan. Jeff, I would like to know, when you have a day one white belt, what are the best pro wrestling finishers to teach them? Oh, that's a great question. I'm tempted to do the Lance Storm half crab simply because that's... That's a legit move. Right. And you can just go like straight belly down ankle lock from there. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. Like I... I uh, yeah, wow, that's a good one, though. Yeah, we, we need to install some turnbuckles so I can do the Randy Savage off the top rope flying elbow <laughs> smash. I, I have elbow dropped a guy before in jujitsu. Like, I got him to the floor, and he did not get up fast enough, so I just straight up elbow dropped him. I have also attempted to RKO someone from Turtle. That did not work. I have successfully tapped someone with a sharpshooter. Oh, the holy grail. Yeah, <laughs> I think one time I even got someone with a figure four, but it was like a white belt who had vertigo. So I don't know if it's much of a brag. <laughs> I think it's a rule that if you sharpshooter someone and they tap, you own their soul forever. <laughs> yeah, I would say the Kurt Angle ankle lock, but, you know, they could just turn out with their hips. Well, but uh, Kurt, Kurt Angle's got the, that awesome two-stage finisher, right? Because he's got the standing ankle lock, which obviously you can get out of. But then when he grapevines the legs, it's like instant tap. And that you could, like with a few adjustments, that could be a totally legit finisher. And besides, Kurt Angle's a shooter, man. I'm not going to tell Kurt Angle he doesn't know how to fight. Not at all. Although I will say, embarrassingly, I did try to iron claw somebody at a white belt. <laughs> well, you like you like stuck your fingers into their stomach. <laughs> oh no 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 no! Not the not the not the Texas tornado style iron claw. Like the face, the Baron von Rash guy. Oh, iron claw. oh wow! <laughs> I, I think we. I think we've lost most of our audience at this point, but honestly, I'm okay with it. I'm okay One of my it. white belts tried to mandible claw meme, and I was like, yeah, no, fingers in the mouth. I draw the line. Oh, well, <laughs> you, you could just bite their fingers off. I mean, I guess that's also an option, but that might be bad for your insurance. Well, maybe maybe this could be actually segue into actually... Uh, that's desperate to get off this topic. <laughs> a, a, a useful topic, <laughs> a topic that's actually of use to our listeners. You know, what about the white belt who walks into a jiu-jitsu school and yeah, maybe they've seen UFC or whatever, but like, there's no etiquette. Like they don't understand the yeah. do's and don'ts of of class. Like, you know, it's very likely that if a white belt ends up in someone's closed guard, they might stand up and just slam them to the floor. Like, how do they know yeah. not to do that? How do they know that that's not acceptable? They're in there fighting for their life. This obnoxious asshole is wrapping their legs around them and not letting them escape and constantly attacking their neck and you know trying to rip their arms off and they don't know what's what's right and what's wrong so you'll see stuff like that you'll see you know spazzing out and and all types of etiquette that is just not really uh it's not a good way to make friends in the practice room so like you know jeff what kind of do you tell your brand newbies like okay, there's a few things that we don't do in here. No fish hooking, no slams, things like that. Like, how do you set the tone in terms of etiquette for uh, someone who's brand new off the street? That is a great question. And my feeling is prevention is always better than addressing the subject, although I'll talk about both. So what we do in terms of prevention, we have a packet of material that we send out to everybody that has a little video about what class is like, as well as some do's and don'ts that we have written down, including, Matt, some of those things that you've mentioned in terms of here are things that are legal, here are things that are not legal, here are things that are considered polite, here are things that are considered not. But what I think that we also have those things in poster format on the wall for people to look at because I ascribe to the Swiss cheese theory or I work in communications and the first three rules of communication are tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, then tell them what you told them. And so we get this information out in a lot of different areas, both with email, with videos, we have it posted on the wall. And this is something that I think has really gotten us out of so many problems. We have a tiered approach before we let anybody spar. So nobody free spars until they get their first stripe on their belt. And before that happens, you take the full eight-week intro class. The first four weeks of that are just drilling. So my goal for people to drill, and I tell them this throughout the class, my goal for people is at the end of that class, you will know at least one technical move from every common grappling position. You may not be able to execute it, right? You may not be able to do the knee elbow escape from mount, but it's a lot more fun and it's a lot more productive for learning if you're trying to do that and it doesn't work as opposed to just, okay, now I'm trying to grab my opponent's face or some other silly things that I'm trying to do. And so 
so not only do we teach them the moves, but then at the end of that four weeks, that then we we start. Nobody spars after that. We do sparring games like positional sparring, variants on what Robert Naki would call FYJJ, where it's just like one to two minutes of we start in the closed guard and we just grapple for a few minutes. And that makes it, for one thing, it's easier on the new person because instead of trying to drink from the fire hose and like, oh, we've ended up in turtle. I don't know anything from turtle. What can I do? Which leads to the spazzing out and leads to the sort of fear-based response of explosiveness. And so instead we put them in the closed guard and it's like, if this leaves the closed guard, we just go right back to it. You know, two things from the closed guard, just keep trying to do those things. And only at the very end of that, do we let them start rolling and we match them up when they roll first. I am almost always everyone's first roll. And the reason for that is I've talked a lot about the prevention aspect, right? Where we sort of send these messages early on. We have people not roll for weeks and weeks, which by the way, also gets out a lot of attitude problem people mm -hmm. who are the people that come in and are just like, I just want to squeeze people's faces. And like, they're like, I don't want to wait eight weeks to roll. I'll go elsewhere. And it's like, fine. And part of the reason that I roll with everybody first, or at least either me or one of the trusted upper belts rolls with folks first is... The way we address the prevention is we pause the role if something really bad or like really, you know, a real etiquette violation has happened. Like if somebody tries to like bend your finger back, we're just like, pause. Hey, uh, you know, don't bend my fingers back because and this is I know I've talked for a while. So I'll, I'll, this is going to be the last thing I'll say. But I think you guys will identify with this. One thing I notice is that the first time people roll. You think you can tell who the attitude problems are going to be or who the people you're going to going to have problems with the first time they start to roll. And, and you usually can, but you can't always. Because once people who've never fought before get into that very adrenalized moment, they're not thinking anymore. And so one of the nicest guys I ever had, one of those laid back 40-something guys, took the intro class. First time I did my, okay, man, you and me for the first time. And I'm super chill, especially when we when I'm rolling with new people. And he kept grabbing my fingers and trying to bend them back. And I every time I'd be like, please don't grab my fingers. Please don't grab my fingers. And I'd, you know, extract my fingers. And the third time he like turns to me angrily and like snaps. He's like, I'm not grabbing your and then he looks down and he's got one of my fingers and he's bending it back and he's like, oh my God. And I'm like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so, yeah. so it's always it's always better to address it on the front end than on the back end, but we just try and keep it calm and address it on the back end that way. Man, I, I love that advice. And I, I totally co-sign on the concept of not letting guys just have open roles when they're starting, because you're right. If you just tell, you know, if you basically like say, you, you go into the circle, fight. Like you're letting the situation spiral way out of control if a person is untrained. But if you say you go into the guard, try and break the guard, you try to hold them. Well, that doesn't feel like a fight anymore, right? I mean, it achieves the same level of instruction, but psychologically speaking, it feels like an athletic endeavor, right? It's a lot less freeform and chaotic than an actual fight is. So that's a great way to, to intro people is to put restrictions on what they can do. I also really like how you talked about how people sometimes can't control themselves. And this is something that we often, I think, lose track of. You know, we think that it's going to be these meatheads who come in and they just want to bang and they're going to be the ones who cause trouble. And that's going to be the case. But for someone who goes into panic mode, it can be very, very hard to actually control your body if you're if you're that scared, right? If you're just going on instinct and you haven't been in this situation before. I mean, I, I remember when I was fighting a, a less experienced, like a, basically a brand new white belt, I was trying to put him in a cross choke and I, I wasn't really protecting my face and he just straight up hit me in the face. And he was so sorry about it, like he just couldn't help himself, which is completely understandable, actually, if you've never been in a choke like that before. So I, I know better now and I know that you got to protect the moneymaker. And I, you know, I'm no uh, no stranger to this myself. I remember when I was new, some guy tried to grab me and like he put me in a wrist lock and I almost bit him. And I had to stop myself and I realized, what the fuck am I doing? But just like, you know, when when you don't know how to fight and instinct kicks in, you wind up doing things that are out of desperation before your brain can even catch up. Just to address a couple of things that we just went over. I really like, Jeff, how you, I assume it's like a leaflet or a, some kind of a pamphlet that you send with these beginners so that it has the do's and don'ts of the, of the dojo. I think that that's a... A fantastic idea to just clearly outline the etiquette in the room. And of course, 
inviting people to watch class, I think, is really important as well so that they can sort of see the environment. Because really, when you've never grappled before, you don't know what it looks like. Like, you don't know... You don't know what it, how much people are respecting each other and how you know what the moves look like and and the actual technical aspects of it. A lot of the time, it just looks to the untrained eye like two cats fighting, right? That's a really important thing. And I also I think that that's an important discussion you guys are having right now about how you know when you're new to something like this, like it, it takes incredible coordination both mentally and physically to do jujitsu. Like your mind is is concentrating on you know, four of your limbs and your head versus four of your opponent's limbs in their head. Like there's tons of stuff going on. There's tons of micro transitions going on in the matter of split seconds. And uh, it's very easy when you're untrained to just kind of fall back into that primal animalistic fight mode where, you know, maybe you are grabbing someone's fingers and you have no idea, or maybe, you know, I can speak from experience. Like I was on a, I was on a guy's back when I was a blue belt. I was in, you know, he was on his side. I didn't have the full back and he just completely spun into me and elbowed me right in the nose and broke my nose. And, uh, because I had my head in the wrong position, honestly, I should have anticipated his, him being green and realized that even though it's training, he's his instinct are telling him that you're fighting for your life right now and I got to get out of this position. And so, you know, it's very difficult for these beginners to come in and be able to control themselves and have a goal of what they're doing and to do it in a safe manner. They got to fight for their life and they have to be polite at the same time. And they, and they have literally (laughs) no, no idea what they're doing. Right. So we kind of have to sympathize with them. And I think that a great way to sort of, you know, like you said, be, be preemptive and sort of prevent situations rather than addressing them as they happen is is giving them like a a booklet or a list of expectations for when you train so you can you can keep each other safe and you can keep everyone happy in the training room yeah most definitely and I i love the way you put that and just the because i've had things like that happen with the the elbow in the face and and uh you know, if there are newer folks listening to this and like wondering what it's like, I would also say, hey, look, forgive yourself. Everybody who does jujitsu has a story about how like I did this thing that was too fast and hard and I popped a guy in the mouth. It's not that big a deal. Learn from it and move on. And one thing too, like we have all of our resources pretty much up on the Bellingham BJJ website, but I always make all my resources. I have, I keep them in Google Docs. I make those available to other school owners. So if anybody who's listening to this is a school owner and wants to like see how we run our intro program, who wants to see the curriculum or the expectations documents or anything like that, just send me an email. Uh, I'd be happy to, to send it out. Or maybe you guys can post it in the show notes if you want. I really feel like we're all in this together. And like, we're all like, we all get better when we all get better. And that's true of us as jujitsu practitioners. And it's also true of us as instructors and teachers. And like, I know I've learned a ton from uh, school owners who've thought a lot about, you know, how to run successful programs, which has made me, you know, it was really helped me improve. So I listen to Keenan's podcast sometimes. One of my good friends is uh, works with Keenan down there. And Keenan Cornelius, obviously one of the best sport competitors ever, one of the best sport athletes in the world. And when you're a competitor, that's kind of your exclusive focus, right? You have to, like, if you want to win the world, you have to, you have to be focused on that goal completely and exclusively. And so now that Keenan has his own school, a legion American jiu-jitsu down in San Diego, He's, you know, he's teaching a, a lot more white belts. And he told a story with on his podcast with Josh Hinger, where he was teaching just a few basic moves to white belts. And he was like, and I, you know, so I was teaching how to how to break a collar grip, and he just punched me in the face. <laughs> and and Keenan was like, and I and Keenan just reacted, and he's a calm guy, so of course he didn't get mad, but he's like, he just reacted with shock. And he's like, I had these experiences when I was rolling with these new white belts. And I was like, I can't even do what I would consider jujitsu. I just have to do self-defense against these guys. Mm -hmm. And it was wild to me because I was like, yeah, man, I've been teaching brand new folks for years now. And that's just the thing that happens. But it was kind of interesting to, to listen to him sort of sort of have that experience for like after after all after all these years of fighting with like the meow brothers and <laughs> lucas lepre and stuff that's like it's a white belt that punches you in the face yeah well <laughs> uh, awesome man and you know you mentioned that people can reach out to you to get this stuff if someone wants to find you learn more about you get in contact with you how do they do that 
Our website is bellinghambjj.com. I'm really active on Instagram at bellinghambjj. I also have uh, an email, which is jeff at bellinghambjj.com. And seriously, I love talking to people about jujitsu. All my students know that they can reach out to me anytime to ask questions about techniques and stuff just because, and sometimes they're, they're like, oh, I don't want to bother you. I'm like, man, I love talking about jujitsu all the time. So if, if you want any of these resources, just hit me up via email or Instagram and I'd be happy to help out. Awesome. Awesome. And also, I mean, we've got the BJJ Mental Models Discord. It's available for patrons, which also helps support the show. You can talk to all of us there. If you want to get on board, go to patreon.com slash BJJ Mental Models. Really, that's the single best thing you can do to help us keep the lights on here. It takes a lot of time and money, actually, to, to make this product and to make it as good as we can make it. So again, we really do appreciate your support. There's a lot of extra perks for patrons, such as community access, Matt and I will narrate and review your rolling footage, premium content. So again, that's patreon.com slash BJJ Mental Models if you want to help us. And thank you in advance if you choose to do so. Jeff, thank you so much for your for your time, for stopping by. Really appreciated this chat. I hope it's an awesome resource for anyone who is either <laughs> trying to explain to their friends what jujitsu is or someone who's trying to like get psyched up to go to their first class. I hope that this episode gets forwarded off to some people and is helpful. Any closing thoughts before we put a bow on this? Yeah, two closing thoughts. First of all, Matt and Steve didn't ask me to do this, but let me just say that Discord is super valuable, and it's been valuable to me as a black belt. There's a lot of other really terrific black belts on there that are really assiduous about answering questions, providing resources. Folks have really, you know, I've learned a ton from it. So if you do support the podcast, uh, that resource alone, I think, could be really, really glad you did. I've had a lot of fun there. So thanks for inviting me both on the podcast and on the Patreon. And the only other thing, guys... I had a great time talking to you all. So um, thanks for putting out a great resource for the community. It's my distinct pleasure to be on. And uh, yeah, I would love to come on again sometime. That was great having you, man. Thanks so much for coming, Jeff. Yeah. And next time, maybe next time we can do what we should have done this time, which is a full episode just on pro wrestling submissions. Absolutely. Matt, you'd be in for that, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm a little bit out of the game. I haven't watched pro wrestling uh you know, for a long Dude, time. Dude, you're not missing much. You're not. Well, actually, no, it's not true. WWE, you're not missing much. But the rest of it is that. It's actually quite interesting. The extent that people will go to to make a fake fight look real, like sometimes they wind up actually doing more damage to themselves than if they just straight up had a real fight. Yeah, when I when I watch WWE now, there's so many reasons why I want to just turn it off. So <laughs> I don't know. It's just it's not it doesn't look good to me anymore. Mostly the foot placement like that shit would never work. Right. They just spin out. <laughs> exactly. No wedges All right. there. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot, everyone, for listening. Hope to hear from you guys soon and talk to you next week. Take care, guys. Bye.